Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And if you're new, we're a dialogue podcast. And what that means is we have real, different conversations about business and life. And if you've been with us for a while, I want to say thank you very much from the bottom of my heart, uh, particularly for sharing this podcast. Um, We recently cracked the top 200 out of 1 million podcasts on Apple. And we know that's because you are sharing this podcast. So on behalf of everybody involved with Follow Your Different, thank you. We deeply, deeply appreciate your radical generosity. And uh, if you've been listening for a while, you know we've tried to steer hard into this crisis to both tackle issues uh, around it, as well as give you a little bit of a respite from it. And, um, you know, it's just great to know that you're sharing this podcast and um, and you're appreciating what we're doing. And I want you to know that we deeply, deeply appreciate you. And frankly, we hope you keep sharing this podcast. All right, on with, the, uh, on with what we're doing <laughs> today, a riveting conversation with Dr. Rana L. Kalubi. She's unbelievable. She's a tech entrepreneur at the forefront of artificial intelligence. She's got a brand new book out called Girl Decoded, and it's awesome. She holds a PhD from the University of Cambridge and a post-doctorate at uh, MIT. Uh, Fortune says she's one of their 40 under 40, and Forbes says she's one of America's top 50 women in tech. And um, she's also an entrepreneur, and she's the co-founder and chief executive officer of a company called Affectiva. She's super thoughtful, and her work on uh, AI is definitely bleeding edge, particularly around human and emotional AI and the ethics around artificial intelligence and much more. Talk about different. Uh, She's different. She's incredible. She also happens to be a Muslim woman who's kicking serious butt in the American tech entrepreneur world. Uh, I think you're going to find this a stunning, inspiring, real dialogue that you're going to love. Now, as you might know, I've been an advisor to over 50 venture-backed startups. And one thing I can tell you is your board of directors, your board of advisors um, want you to survive through this time. And in order to survive, you want to be on top of your numbers, all your critical numbers. And that's where my friends at Oracle NetSuite come in. They help you reduce uncertainty by giving you the visibility and control that you need, frankly, so that you have the insights around what's going on with things like your financials, your cash flow, your payroll, your inventory, and more, all in one place. Um, No more guessing, no more waiting. Join the over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to stay in control of their business. Uh, Right now, you can receive your free guide, Managing Business Uncertainty, and schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different for your free guide and your free NetSuite product tour. Also, one thing has become crystal clear, and that's that digital companies, and frankly, digital government agencies outperform enterprises that don't leverage the power of data. And that's where my friends at Splunk come in. Splunk is the category queen of data to everything. Splunk helps you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. Learn how you can turn data into doing today at splunk.com slash D, the number two E, as in data to everything. That's Splunk.com 
com slash D2E. Now, hey-ho, let's go. born in Cairo, Egypt, and then my, my, my parents moved to the Middle East. They worked there for a number of years. We were there until the first Gulf War when we had to evacuate and go back to Cairo. And then I you know, went to undergrad in, in Egypt at the American University in Cairo, studied computer science, then made my way to England for my doctorate degree and ended up at MIT um, where, where I did my postdoc and now run my company. So it's been kind of a slow journey making my way uh, to the, you know, to the U.S. It doesn't sound slow. It sounds pretty uh, extraordinary. <laughs> it's, it's been, yeah, it's, it's kind of been an interesting journey, not just, um, you know, not just professionally, but personally, too. Because um, I, I grew up in the Middle East, my parents really supported my education and, and my two younger sisters' education. So they really invested in, you know, in, in, in making sure we went to the best schools and that we had exposure to many different cultures and experiences. Um, but still, right, it's, it's a culture where, you know, women don't go off and, you know, start their own companies and, you know, go off and do their PhDs ab- abroad. So it's, it's been an interesting journey of kind of finding who I am and um, finding my voice. And so, you know, maybe educate me a little bit about that, Rana. What's it like to be a young gal growing up in Egypt with uh, aspirations around math and computer science and, and ultimately now entrepreneurship? Yeah, I mean, again, I think it, it depends, but I grew up in a family where um, the women, you know, are educated. And in fact, my mom worked her entire career. She was actually, so she, she met my dad in a programming class in the seventies. So she was probably one of the first women in the Middle East to, um, to be in the c- computer science space and, and learn programming. And so she, she coded for a number of years in COBOL, um, worked for a very big kind of multinational bank in Kuwait. Um, so I, you know, so I grew up surrounded by strong women, but it was always kind of understood that your first priority, you know, is the family and, and you kind of do your work on the side. That was kind of definitely the context. I was lucky in that when I was an undergraduate at the American University in Cairo, I was completely oblivious to this whole like, oh, there's not enough girls and women in STEM. So it was kind of a balanced class. You know, I was one of the top students in my class. And so I, I just I just didn't really think much about it until I got to Cambridge University for my doctorate degree. And um, I think there were about maybe 100 PhD students, five of which were uh, were female. And so that 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 was when I started to think about, ooh, you know, maybe I am in the minority here. And um, I've been quite privileged to have this opportunity. Why do you say you've been privileged to have this opportunity? You know, I've been I've been really lucky in that my parents um, really prioritized our education back in the Middle East, and and you know, and then I had this opportunity to travel abroad to do my PhD in computer science, and and again, I I you know, I, I actually enjoyed the fact that I was in the minority. I started a computer, um, a, you know, a women 
in computer science group and you know um it's still running strong at cambridge yeah so i i, I feel i was definitely privileged in having access to all these amazing learning opportunities and we you know and i've spent a bunch of time in the middle east so i'm hopefully not completely ignorant i'm not an expert but you know i've been there and mm-hmm. i've worked with lots of middle eastern folks and and so forth and so on but we do have a picture particularly here in the united states of um, the Middle East, and we have a picture of women in the Middle East, mm-hmm. and you know, you hear things about Saudi Arabia and women just getting the right to drive, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. and and we of course look at that and go, what? Right. And so, uh, you know, we have this image here that that you sort of fly in the face of, and so maybe help me sort of figure out, like, okay, we hear all these that it's not a great place for uh, women, and particularly women in STEM or entrepreneurship. It sounds extraordinary based on, you know, what we, what we read and what we see on TV. Um, so maybe tell me about, you know, your life versus the picture that we see. Yeah, this is actually one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because I wanted to debunk a lot of the myths around what a Middle Eastern Arab, even Muslim family looks like. So I grew up in a kind of a, I call it a conservative slash disciplined family, right? Like, um, I have two younger sisters, but again, like my extended family were all, you know, all super educated men and women. Um, a lot of the women worked and had their careers still kind of in the, in the context of, okay, you're going to work, but, but obviously family comes first. You know, a lot of the women who were around me had agency in making a lot of decisions uh, for the family. And so I, I do think this is not the picture that, you know, often gets portrayed in the media. Um, so it's nuanced, right? And I wanted to kind of communicate that level of, 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 of nuance. And, and how do you feel about sort of women in the Middle East now? And, and we'll talk about technology and entrepreneurship, but sort of the, h- how are women doing in the Middle East? <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> well, again, I don't want to like generalize because there are, of course, examples where, you know, there's still a lot of work to do, right? I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that we're, it's all done and we're all set, but there's many different flavors of women in the Middle East. And I wanted to make sure that we portray not just one narrative, but, but be able to share kind of the richness and the breadth of all, all of the different stories that, you know, women in the Middle East have, and I'm, and I'm one of them. And, and to me, it all really starts with education. And so I'm a huge advocate right now of just getting more women. Yeah, just, yeah, just more women educated. I think it's really critical. And it, it feels like you're quite the trailblazer, but are you trying to tell people that maybe you're not as much of a trailblazer as you might appear to be? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think I'm the only trailblazer and I don't think I'm the first trailblazer. I, I do think my story is unique um, in that I am, you know, in the middle of of, of the whole artificial intelligence um, move and and I also bring a very human-centric approach to it. So I think that's kind of where I'm different, but I'm definitely not the only, you know, kick-ass woman from the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> An entire region. There's right. one kick-ass right. woman in tech. No, right. No, <laughs> Well, that's not. good to hear. What, what else? I, and of course, I want to get into what you're doing, but what else would you like the sort of average person who's, if I could say, call it maybe in the Western world, mm. what, what would you like? people to know about um, Egyptian women, women in the Middle East? Yeah, I, I guess maybe don't judge the, a book by its cover. Definitely have an open mind 
to kind of, yeah, understanding how, how the culture is like in the Middle East. Again, I think, I think what is really powerful about this is the level of nuance, right? And that's not always apparent in the media, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And, and certainly post 9-11, I think the conversation about Islam in the United States is is a lot different than it was pre 9/11. And I you know I've heard you talk elsewhere about your religion. And so maybe uh, you know tell me a little bit about how you feel about your religion and, and mm-hmm. particularly here in the United States and as as a woman in the United States. Yeah, so I'm you know I'm a Muslim. I was actually raised kind of you, you know not too conservative Muslim, but definitely abiding by a, a lot of the traditions of Islam. I got accepted to do my PhD at Cambridge University just a few weeks before September 11th happened. So I was was kind of um, about to leave Cairo to get to Cambridge when all of this happened. And my parents were very concerned for my safety. At the time, I wore the hijab. I don't anymore, and I can talk about that too. Um, and so they said, you know, you can't leave, you know, you're going to get targeted and there's going to be a third world war happening. Um, but I, I went anyways and I got to Cambridge and, you know, I was, I was a little scared, I would say initially, but I, I always talk about my smile being my secret weapon. I was like, okay, if I just smile at every person who sees me, it'll be fine. And it worked, right? I think people were very open. They were very kind. I never felt I was discriminated against. Um, And that is true for my experience in in the United States as well. I think of myself as the bridge or the, you know, an ambassador for Islam. I try to recognize that maybe, you know, people get their information from the media and it might be a little bit biased. And so I try to just humanize it, right? And just, you know, invite people into our traditions and our culture. I remember not long after 9-11, yeah, I'm a huge uh, fight fan. And of course, one of my heroes since I was a very little boy is Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think it's probably safe to say he was the highest profile Muslim, maybe in the world, mm-hmm. certainly in the United States for a meaningful period of time. And I always felt, you know, he was such, he, he felt like to me as an ambassador for love, if, you know, as corny as that might sound. Um, and I've noticed this trend of great warriors become that they become they become warriors for peace warriors for love and it always struck me that that's sort of part of his journey anyway long story longer i always wished post 9-11 that his illness wasn't as bad because i felt like the average american might have been able to relate to him in a way that you know they wouldn't sort of particularly given what was going on in the media and so you're now a high profile muslim woman in the tech entrepreneurial space and, and what is it you want people to know about your faith? Um, I want people to know that, you know, there's a number of core values in my faith and probably, you know, other religions and other spiritual, you know, traditions that, that are universal. You know, the core value of kindness and compassion, the core value of hard work, the core value of generosity, like Islam and, and kind of Egyptians in the Middle East in general, we're one of the most generous societies out there. And we, we love bringing that, like my family and my kids, we love bringing that to our experience here in Boston. You know, our house is open for our friends. We try to share our traditions. So that, that's what I really want people to know about Islam. 
Well, and some of my favorite food is Middle Eastern. Oh, what's your favorite food? Well, I just like the sort of um, more Mediterranean diet, you know, the sort of mm-hmm. fresh vegetables and a lot of fresh fish totally. and tabbouleh and hummus and, you know, all of that stuff. And and so there's just, uh, you know, of course, in the United States today, we have this massive farm to table movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, of course, I didn't grow up in the Middle East, but it strikes me that that wasn't a movement there because that's how it is, <laughs> right? The food totally. is fresh and the menu changes in the restaurant or the home based on what's available. And so, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm romanticizing it, but it seems like, um, in the Middle East, certainly in, 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 uh, Italy, in, in mm-hmm. Greece, et cetera, et cetera, where these climates are maybe more conducive to it. This, this idea of fresh food, healthier food, lots of olive oil, but I don't know. You tell me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, food is a is a big, big thing in the Middle East and, and especially in Egypt. Um, although I'm personally not a great cook, but my mom is and my, my, my aunts and my sisters and everybody except me, it seems. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I'm pescatarian. So very much of a Middle Eastern diet, um, always fresh food, lots of vegetables, lots of fish, as you said, olives. Yeah, it's really it's really yummy. <laughs> yeah, very, very, very <laughs> yummy. Now, uh, you have this amazing life that you're having in technology as an entrepreneur, as a scientist. Um, and I'm curious, you talk a lot about emotional intelligence in the AI world. And maybe at first blush, that seems a little bit counterintuitive. Um, so I'm very curious about sort of this notion you have of emotional intelligence and how that connects to technology. Yeah, so so kind of the, the story here is, you know, I studied computer science as an undergraduate. I was always intrigued by how technology is kind of our portal for communicating with one another, right? Like even, you know, 25 years ago when I was an undergraduate or whatever, I, I kind of saw this pattern, right? Like with technology, it empowers us to communicate with more people. But I always felt there was something missing, right? It, it was, we were communicating with more and more people. So the quantity was there, but the quality of the connection wasn't quite there. It was kind of almost like an illusion of a connection. So then I get to Cambridge and it was my first experience really living abroad away from my family. And I was a new bride back then. So, um, you know, and my, my, he's not my husband anymore. My ex uh, stayed back because he ran a software company in Cairo. And so here I was in Cambridge alone. Uh, trying to figure it out. And, and I realized I was spending more time with, with my laptop. Um, this was way before smartphones. So I was spending all this time with my computer and it just hit me that, that despite this intimacy, this machine had absolutely no clue how I was feeling. And there was a lot of days where I was really down or, you know, felt lonely and disconnected. And, 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 and this thing just had no clue. And then not only that, right. It was the main portal of communication I had with my family back home. So all of the richness in, you know, your voice intonations and your facial expressions and your gestures. And I'm Middle Eastern, so I do a lot of those. <laughs> all of that. You're, you're moving around a lot and there's a lot of hands and a lot of swizzling <laughs> totally. around in your chair there, Anna. Exactly. But all of that nuanced nonverbal communication is lost when we're just chatting over text, which was kind of the main way I stayed in touch with my family back home. And so I, that just got me thinking like emotional intelligence and our emotions in general are so important to how we live our lives. 
how we make decisions, how we connect with one another, how we learn, how our memory gets encoded. Yet in the digital universe, it's kind of devoid of all of that. So, so that set me on a path of building technology that has artificial intelligence and that emotional intelligence um, and um, maybe even someday empathy. Hmm. And so um, maybe tell me a little bit about your company and how you're trying to embrace these ideas in a, in a commercial enterprise, so to speak. Yes. Yeah, so, so first of all, I'll start by saying it, I, starting a company was never in my career plan. Uh, my plan was to go abroad, get my PhD, and then come back to Cairo and teach. I really wanted to be faculty at the American University in Cairo, my alma mater. But then I got to MIT and you know, was exploring the applications of my technology, which is essentially a system that can map and understand your facial expressions and map it to kind of an emotional and cognitive state inference. So it would um, track your face and then identify that, oh, you're smiling or you just did an eyebrow raise or you're nodding your head, which you are right now. <laughs> um, and then it would map it to an understanding of what this person is, is thinking or feeling. And at MIT, I was specifically focused on applying the technology to autism and helping autistic individuals understand nonverbal communication. Um, but being at MIT, we were very um, closely kind of connected to the industry. And so twice a year um, at the Media Lab at MIT, we would invite all of these um, industry sponsors of the lab. And it was, it was called Sponsor Week or Member Week, but it was also called Demo or Die. So you have to sh really show your technology. Um, so I hate to interrupt you, but, you know, we always heard in, in academia, publish or perish. Right. Is this the technology version of that demo or die? Exactly. It was exactly that. Like you couldn't show up with the, with a PowerPoint presentation, but that wouldn't cut it. You had to actually show a working prototype of whatever you were working on. And, and just so that I get clear, the original focus was... Um, using technology to help folks with autism gain a better understanding of nonverbal communication, which you tell me is more of a challenge for people with autism. They're less uh, in tune to it or sensitized to it or, or what have you. And so you, at the time you thought you could use computers to help bridge that gap. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so the form of the technology, it, it, it looked something like a Google Glass. This was in 2006. So it was way before Google Glass existed. And the glasses had a little, you know, a pair of cameras and the cameras looked, you know, so if I had autism, I'd put on the, the set of glasses with the camera and the camera would process in real time the nonverbal cues of how, whoever I was interacting with and it would give me real-time feedback. It would say, oh, you know, um, you know, this person looks interested or excited or confused uh, or you're monologuing, you're talking too much, take a break and ask the question, right? Um, and, and what we found is a lot of these individuals don't even make face contact or eye contact because the information is just so overwhelming. Um, so they avoid it altogether. So with the glasses, it would give real-time feedback, encouraging them to make face contact or eye contact. So it was really powerful. I find it fascinating that, you know, of course, I'm just getting to know you, but somebody who is so uh, dynamic in the way you present yourself, I mean, your voice, intonations, your face. I mean, you are the opposite of somebody who's hard to read. 
right? physically, right? right? Your face and so forth, right? right? It's right. it's fascinating that somebody who's very expressive, I guess, would be interested in, in tuning people into this. I think it's because when I got to Cambridge and that was missing from my life, it was really, it, it was painful. It was painful to be chatting with my family back home in tears, but they can't tell that because none of these nonverbal signals are getting through in a digital, you know, when, when we're on social media or when we're connecting and communicating with each other online, it's this illusion of connection, but it's not the same depth as when, you know, we're in the room together and you're seeing all of these signals happen in real time. So I think that was really, I, I felt this gap. I mean, I really think this kind of gap polarizes people. If we can't empathize, if we can't, you know, if I say something hurtful and I can't see that it hurt you, then 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 we're not really empathizing with each other. So I felt that, you know, it will make technology better for sure. But I also felt that it's going to make humans better in a way. And And the extreme case of this was autism, because these individuals really struggle with understanding each other's, you know, other people's nonverbal signals. And it, you know, if you're a kid in school, and you can't tell if somebody's being sarcastic, or, you know, somebody's flirting with you, then, um, then, then it makes it harder. And if you're trying to get a job and you can't really, you know, interview or, again, see these signals, then it, it just makes life a lot harder. The other, that makes a ton of sense to me. The other aha I've had of late, Rana, is there's, uh, and I, some of it's age related, but more and more people, their digital life, if you could call it that, has now become their primary life mm -hmm. and their physical life is their secondary life. And, you know, one example I see of this, you're talking about flirting, uh, you know, according to the online dating industry, which I'm sure is biased, but approximately 50% of the marriages in the United States now originate this way. Mm -hmm. And I, the aha that I've had about that is you think about meeting somebody and flirting and getting to know them and, and you know, how, how relationships, uh, romantic, relationships build if that's true and let's just say for sake of argument it's true um you know in the old days we used to say you know buddy your problem is you got no game you gotta get you gotta get the game going right you gotta know how to <laughs> talk to people you're interested in and so so the aha for me on that is in the dating world today your digital game is at least as important and maybe i don't know you'll tell me more important than your physical or real life game uh, and so as the digital experience of life becomes more and more primary, our ability to humanly connect becomes more important because to your point, I think a lot of these digital communications feel fairly devoid of human interaction. Yeah, there's two ways to think about this. One is to just submit that, you know, dating applications and other kind of social media platforms you know, it is what it is and it's not going to change and we have to accept that. And then that does have implications on how we, you know, what our digital personas are like. My biggest challenge with these online dating apps is that, yeah, you can have an amazing online conversation with somebody, but how do you know that it's going to translate to the real world, right? So I often joke that, you know, the killer app in, in a in the dating world is an application that can leverage emotion AI and can give you a predictor, like if you're going to actually have chemistry, if you meet this person, you know, in, in the real world. So, um, 
So there's that. But I also believe that there's an opportunity to create these types of applications from the ground up thinking about human-centric AI. Like, I really think there's a huge commercial opportunity to design a social media platform where a lot of these nonverbal signals are part and parcel of how people connect and communicate. So maybe let's go there. Tell, tell me about your business today. And if I was a potential prospect or a potential employee or a potential business partner, give me the pitch. Okay. What's the story? <laughs> Um, we're not in the dating, uh, we're not in the dating business, but no. Um, so the, so Affectiva is, is, uh, my company. It's a spin out of MIT. Uh, my co-founder is a professor called Rosalind Picard. She actually started the field of affective computing. So she wrote the book many years ago. And our mission is to humanize technology before, before it dehumanizes us. And so we use machine learning and computer vision and voice analytics to build um, technology that can understand how humans communicate, which is the majority of which is nonverbal, right? It's as we talked, you know, the facial expressions, the gestures, the, um, you know, the activities, the behaviors, quantify all of that, not just the words you're saying, um, but everything else you're doing. Um, and then there, there's a lot of applications, um, which, which both makes this opportunity super exciting, but super challenging. So we're focused specifically at Affectiva on a number of key markets. The first is helping, you know, Fortune 500 companies really figure out how their audiences emotionally engage with their content and their products and their services. So, you know, we test a lot of online video ads, a lot of content, and we're able to map moment by moment how people respond to this content. And we aggregate it, and then we can tell you, oh, you know, people liked your joke. They laughed. Or people were very, like, offended by what, you know, by this particular scene. Or they were poker face or flat face the whole time, which we see in a lot of, like, shampoo ads, you know, just not interesting. People are not emotionally engaged at all. So that's one use case. I, I'm very non-emotionally engaged with any kind of a shampoo ad. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's like... It doesn't not, do anything for me, Ron. You're, you're not in the target audience for that. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> um, so that's one That's one market. And we, you know, we're, through our partners, we uh, um, help... 25% of the Fortune 500 companies test their ads worldwide and test their content. Something I find fascinating about that, you know, as a CMO marketing mm -hmm. guy myself, we've long heard, and I think this is true, that, that marketing and really communication in a lot of ways, not completely, but in a lot of ways, is a transference of feeling. And of course, it's a transference of information as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, one of my favorite expressions is um, they're never going to remember what you said, but they're always going to remember how you made them feel. Right. And yet, to your point, as a marketer, if I run a digital ad or whatever it is I'm doing, uh, or if I'm creating content as a podcaster or what, what, what have you, how do I know how that ad or that podcast or that blog or whatever it is? is making people feel. If that's the number one thing we're trying to do is communicate some sort of a feeling uh, that hopefully drives uh, an action. Right. Ultimately, they buy our product or they engage with us or whatever our goal of the, the, the communication is. And so that's the gap you're trying to bridge, is it not? A hundred percent, exactly. And you can ask people after the fact, you can say, oh, like on a scale from one to 10, like, how did you like this podcast? And, and people will 
you know, often they will do their best effort to answer it authentically and honestly, but that doesn't really tell you, it doesn't really capture the emotional journey, right? That you try to create. Uh, and it's really hard for people to articulate that. Whereas we're now able to tap into these kind of subconscious signals that sometimes you don't even notice that you're doing. And we're able to quantify that and then aggregate it. And that kind of information becomes really powerful for marketers and content creators to, yeah, they, they make media spend decisions based on it. Sometimes they will cut content. Um, they will re-swizzle um, a particular ad. Yeah, there's a lot of ways this this information is, uh, is insightful. And we've also found that the level of emo your emotional engagement or your mo emotional journey as you engage with a particular piece of content is very predictive of things like purchase intent and sales behavior and virality, for example, or word of mouth sharing. Yeah, so there's a lot of evidence that this emotional engagement is is will drive consumer behavior, which you already know that, right? <laughs> yeah, but how do we do it in this digital age, and, and how do we understand it? You know, as a side note, we did our first uh, listener survey this past summer, and uh, I, I didn't really want to do it. I kind of got talked into it, but um, it, it was fascinating. We learned all sorts of things, but one of them was that 80% roughly, I forget the exact number, but it was in the 80s of our listeners said they heard about the podcast mm -hmm. from somebody else. And, the, and that shouldn't be a surprise, I guess. But at the same time, you know, I sit there and go, we have all this sophisticated marketing and you could do all this targeting and you could do all this stuff that you could never even dream of even five years ago, never mind 15 years ago. And so we can get super sophisticated about all that shit and it's helpful and, and so forth. Okay. Yeah. But the reality is nothing beats good old word of mouth. But then how do you know you're doing things that are worthy of people talking about, right? right. In this new digital era. Right. right. Yeah. And it has to go back to what kind of emotions are you eliciting in, in the audience? And, and can you quantify that? Right. Be because if there is an element of surprise or unexpected, you know, a violation of expectations that's going to translate to memory. And hopefully that then translates to word of mouth. Yeah. So we're trying to capture that outside of a survey, which is super helpful, but it taps into a different part of your brain, right? Like with the survey, you have to think about the question. I kind of have to intuit what I think you want to hear. Um, we see that a lot in focus groups, right? Where, where, you know, the whole conversation is driven by one or two really kind of you know, strong characters. Whereas with this kind of approach, you're really tapping into these nonverbal signals, um, often subconscious. And of course, the human eye and brain is very sophisticated. You and I are having this conversation. We can see each other. Mm -hmm. uh, you're picking up on things. I'm picking up on things. Some of those things are, are uh, somewhat subconscious and so forth. And so we're now at a level with this technology where unlike a survey, the technology can begin to emulate some of those background or almost subconscious cues that that you and I are naturally giving each other. We're now at a point where you can, with your technology, you can sort of monitor if that's the right word. You're gonna, you'll tell me somebody's experience of a piece of marketing or a piece of content or whatever, a website, whatever it is, and and get that same kind of level of insight that you and I get just by kind of looking at each other. Yes, the idea is is really 
to do this, first of all, with, with people's consent, right? So we're really big on opt-in and kind of respecting that this is very personal data. Um, and so, so we're very big advocates of data privacy and, and even like making sure that people who are sharing these expressions are getting something in return for it. Um, but in general, what is really powerful, I think, about this is that it does provide content creators with an opportunity to get data that they would otherwise not really have access to. And it, it could be done at scale. You know, we, we're, we're in about 87 countries around the world. You could compare, you know, differences, you know, gender differences in how people respond to content, age difference, cultural differences. So I find that aspect of it really fascinating. And as you would imagine, I, I do a lot of speaking events. I do a lot of online webinars and I don't like the online webinars because I really can't tell how my audience is engaging. And I imagine for you as a podcaster, you must often be wondering like, you know, these people who are in their cars driving or listen, you know, listening, how, how are they feeling? You know, I, I for sure wonder about it. And, you know, I've given a couple speeches in my life. I understand exactly what you're talking about. And when you do big rooms, of course, the frustration is it's generally dark. And so you can see the first two rows at best, and you might be in front of 10,000 people, but you can't see them. Uh, and, and so I, I understand that, particularly when you're presenting or speaking. As a podcaster, this may sound crazy. I never think about an audience mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because this podcast is the podcast I want to hear. I'm our biggest fan. When we drop a new episode, I stop and listen to it and I forget that it's my podcast. And I just, cause it's the, I, I'm a fan. And so, you know, right now you and I are talking and I just, I'm trying to learn about you and get to know you and hopefully have a great conversation. And, and from that perspective, I could give a shit. Right. People either like it or they don't. Right. And and I love it. Yeah. And hopefully they do. And if they don't, well, whatever. And if they do, fantastic. Right. So I'm not at that level. I'm not trying to optimize my behavior. <laughs> Anybody who's listening to this podcast knows that I'm not optimizing for anything. Um, but it is interesting after the fact to see what works and doesn't, even if you're like me and you're really not going to modify anything right, right, based right, right. on the internet. <laughs> But as a CMO the, or as a marketer, the ability to understand how your stuff is landing, I think that's a completely different thing, right? Right. Um, and so uh, that's a big, big use case for you, yes? Right. That was the initial, that was kind of, I would say, the low-hanging opportunity when we first started the company. Um, the other area that we're very focused on is automotive. Um, and, and the thesis there is a car is just a robot on wheels. And it's you know, we are increasingly being surrounded by conversational interfaces, perceptual interfaces. We're going to start seeing more and more of, you know, Amazon Alexa type devices that have both ears, but also eyes. Um, and so we want to be the ears and the eyes of the car um, to help make our roads safer, but also to kind of really reimagine what a transportation experience looks like. So what does that practically mean? Like one very kind of immediate use case is when um, you are in your car and you feel really tired and you're falling asleep or you're distracted for a variety of reasons or you're like me, you know, taking all these conference calls while, while driving uh, and, and that might be affecting my level of attention. We're able to detect all of these subtle cues uh, on, on the driver and 
with increased automation, the car can intervene in any number of ways to ensure that you are safer. So this gets into an interesting area, right? So uh, there are several now, and maybe all of them, you'll tell me, major insurance companies, car insurance companies. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think Geico and a couple others, you see the ads on TV, who are offering these programs where essentially if you allow them to monitor your driving and you drive the way they think you should, they will give you a break on your insurance. Mm -hmm. And this stuff starts to get really creepy, right? Because, um, of course, not only know how you're driving, they know where you're driving. And it's, you know, this quote unquote thing about the surveillance economy. And so on one hand, it would be interesting if the car knew that I was starting to fall asleep. Maybe my head was nodding off or my eyes, whatever. And the, and the seat vibrated or mm -hmm. you, you'll tell me maybe it shocks you in the genitalia or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, of course, the new technology, the newer cars, the sensors and all this kind of stuff, if you're backing up and it makes you a better parallel parker. And there's, you know, there's some really incredible a car today versus a car 10 years ago is like stunningly different from a safety and technology point of view. And so I guess, Rana, help me think about sort of the positive versus the potential uh, you know, Georgia Orwellian terrifying part of this. Yeah, I, th I think if we take a step back, any technology is really neutral and it's how we decide to design it and deploy it is what's going to kind of, right, like take us into whether it's really fulfilling its potential for a positive impact versus potential for abuse. Um, and that is especially true for this type of technology. Um, in the car case, a lot of the use cases we're focused on is basically partnering with the car manufacturer so that in real time, and none of the data leaves the device, leaves the car, which is the device. Um, it's all happening. It's all being processed in real time on the car um, or inside the car. Um, and the vehicle is going to react differently depending on your level of, you know, again, engagement, you know, how tired you are, how attentive you are. I do think the use case with the insurance, and we have to be very careful, right? Because, because what kind of data is being tracked is going to really matter here and who has control over that data is going to really matter. Uh, with the insurance use case, I guess if I'm going to pay a lower premium and I know I drive well and I, I'm going to, you know, get paid a lower premium. That could be interesting for me. Do I want my insurance company really knowing where I am? No, but that's a different type of data anyways, right? Like why do they need that type of data? They just need to track, you know, how many times a day do I fall asleep on the wheel or how many times a day do I text while driving? Right? So again, this is where like the actual design of the use case and the application is what matters here. And, we just need a lot more transparency about what data is being tracked, who's using it, how's it being used. And we're not there yet as an industry. Yeah. But we need to. One of the things I wonder about is are we ever going to be at a place where, by law, whatever the quote unquote platform, product, uh, device, whatever you want to describe it as, whatever the thing is that's tracking data about us that is then. You, available for some use, right? That we are the owners of that data, right? I, right. I, like if you, I just read an article, you know, you're talking about dating apps. I just read an article about how much data these apps are tracking. And I, I'm a very married man, so I'm not on any of these apps. <laughs> um, but, but apparently the, 
I don't know which, what are the popular ones, whatever they are. Many of them allow you to quote unquote log in from Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Okay. Well, apparently when you do, what's the um, Tinder? Um, apparently, uh, and I may be getting this a little bit off, but I just saw a story in the Wall Street Journal about this. When, if you log into Tinder through Facebook, you have agreed via their terms of use to allow them to mine all of this Facebook data about you. And and so now, like, Tinder's big data store about you is is like at a level that certainly I didn't understand when I read this article. And, you know, that all this shit starts to be pretty scary pretty quickly, right? Right. And I think what's interesting is that consumers don't really realize that, right? Like, they, I, I, I don't think people realize how much data about us is already out there. Forget about emotion technology, emotion AI technology, right? Like there's already a ton of data about us out there and there needs to be a lot more transparency. There needs to be two things, a lot more transparency on how and who is has access to it. And then we got to find a way to solve this power asymmetry. So back to your point, how can we get to a world where we own that data and not, you know, big governments or big companies or, you know, big institutions. Yeah. But the bottom line is, thanks to you and many others, the car companies are going to know a lot more about us than uh, they used to know when uh, we just went and bought a car and that was that. Yes, that is true. But I, I think that is going to make for a safer, you know, for a safer and more comfortable and more personalized experience, um, which is yes. what the focus That's is. That's the trade-off. Correct. Yeah. I was going to take us to another area where I think there's a huge potential for this technology, but the same questions come up too, which is mental health, right? So today, when you walk into a doctor's office, they don't ask you, oh, what's your temperature? Or like, tell me your blood pressure. They just measure it. But in mental health, the gold standard is still a survey. Oh, tell me from a one, you scale from one to five, like how depressed are you? Or how, you know, did you have any suicidal thoughts in the last three days? And it's just so unreliable and we got to do better. And, and this kind of technology is an opportunity to capture long-term longitudinal data on a person, know your baseline so that if a person starts to deviate from it, the device or the platform can say, oh, I noticed that there's something wrong today. Would you like me, you know, it's good for the person to know that, but it can also offer all sorts of support. Um, but then again, so that's, that's where the potential is. Cause we know that there are f- facial and vocal biomarkers of things like depression and Parkinson's, um, and autism and even suicidal intent. But then there's all sorts of questions around, okay, who owns this data? Who has access to this data? Did I give permission for this data to be shared with, you know, a partner yes. or a family member? So uh, you get into all sorts of questions. And is your position, hey, we're going to build the technology and we're going to provide it to people. And like you said earlier, the technology inherent of itself isn't good or bad. It's how people use it and what they do with it. Uh, is that generally how you think about it or how do you think about it? No, no. I take a very strong stance and I try to be a strong advocate of how we can do this right. I don't have all the answers, but I'm very vocal and my company is very vocal and in, in that there are these set of core values that we have to ab- abide to. And, and so, for example, Affectiva will not do any work in lie detection or deception or surveillance. And we've turned down you know, millions of dollars 
from potential investors and, and partners who wanted us to go in that direction. Because I think there, the potential for abuse and discrimination and profiling is just, is way, you know, it's just, it isn't, it's not in line with our core values of trying to bridge a communication gap, help people. As of now, there's not, you don't have a law enforcement use case. We do not. Although you could. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. In fact, in 2011, which was a couple of years into the company, we had raised a small round of funding, which was about, to be done. So we knew we had to go back and raise more money. We were two months away from not making payroll. And we got this call from the um, venture arm of an intelligence agency. And they said, Hey, you know, we've been following the company, like your technology, we think there's a lot of application in, you know, deception detection, we're going to give you $40 million. But the condition is you kind of have to focus on this industry. And it was it was a tough decision because because I didn't know if we were able to raise money elsewhere, and so it was kind of an existential threat for the company. We may not exist in two months, so on the one hand, it would make sense to take that money, but I, I just I remember thinking really hard about it, and it I did I didn't want to do that because that's not why we started mm. Affectiva, and so we turned down the money, and it all turned out okay. We raised money elsewhere. Um, but this, this was an example where having clarity around why we're building this and h- how it ought to be deployed. I'm kind of sticking. So let me, can I nudge you on yeah, this one a little yeah, yeah, go for it. So I was just checking to get the stats. Out of every thousand sexual assault, 99, uh, 995 perpetrators will walk free. Yeah. And I know for a fact that um, uh, with murders in this country, if you murder somebody, you have at least a 40 percent chance of getting away with it. Wow. And so if you if you know, we talk about all kinds of crimes, but if you talk about physical crimes, I don't know, I'm not an expert, but as a layman, murder and rape would be like right up there. Mm -hmm. And if you rape somebody you're almost guaranteed of getting away with it. And if you murder somebody, I mean, you got a 40 plus percent chance of getting away with it. Those are scary, terrifying things to me. And I know that the incidence of violent crime in our society generally is coming down. So, you know, that's, of course, a good long-term trend. But at the same time, I look at those numbers and go, hmm, the degree to which we can use technology to solve violent horrible crimes would seem to be a good thing. I want the biggest deterrent possible for uh, candidates who are considering rape or murder. And so uh, help me with how you think about that. Yeah, I will. I will say this is a debate we have internally as a company every so often because we continue to get asked to apply the technology you know, in, in similar use cases in the U.S. and actually abroad. So we've had foreign governments approach us who, who wanna, wanted access to our technology for these kinds of use cases. And, and I will say the, the sentiment ha- is changing over the years. Like 20 years ago, it was a clear no. And then I think now I'm getting a lot more pushback, you know, people asking questions, like people feel less safer public, you know, when they're out there and, and maybe a general kind of position that technology ought to solve this. I just honestly feel like 
the potential for abuse is so huge. For example, if the algorithm is biased in any way, there's a much larger potential for discrimination against minority groups, for example, with this kind of technology. And, and so I feel like without thoughtful regulation, without kind of a, a recognition that this is this technology is really nascent and it's going to mature over the years i just don't think i don't think this is we're ready for this yeah 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 and look i'm not ar arguing that we are i i don't know yeah. i think what i love about what you're doing is you're having the debate right and you know my one of my favorite podcasts is this podcast grumpy old geeks by uh, Jason DeFilippo and uh, Brian Schulmeister. It's a, if you haven't listened, they're, they're awesome. And they talk about shit like this all the time. <laughs> and one of the comments that they, a uh, refrain that they go back to is, um, because the algorithm, of course, is created by people, people have biases, even if they're not intended as negative biases, we all have biases. Some of us, you know, I can't eat pickles. They make me want to throw up. I don't know why. I fucking hate pickles right. <laughs> so i have a bias right we all have biases one way or another for one reason or another that may not be nefarious at all right we may be and people building these algorithms might have all the um, altruistic intentions to be great for humanity and shit can still go awry right we've all seen the sci-fi movies and you know all that so so anyway the grumpy old geeks guys make the point that all those biases because humans create them end up in the algorithms. And is that sort of where you are or how, how do you think about yeah, it? Yeah, I 100% I agree with that. Like AI in a weird way is just a mirror for society. And so the way we like to approach it is recognize that, you know, you design for what you know. And so we try to include diversity in, in the teams that design these algorithms, in the data that we feed these algorithms, and how we test these algorithms. Um, and I'm especially, I think, attuned to that because I, you know, I, I, I am not your typical kind of white guy, right? <laughs> um, really? I, I hadn't noticed. <laughs> so I, I really, you know, I, I'm very aware of that. And we try to make sure that we have very diverse, you know, from a gender perspective, ethnic perspective, even age perspective. So we have an internship program where we bring in high school kids over the summer for a number of weeks. And yes, they're getting a lot of experience working at Affective and exposure to how you build AI. But more importantly, we're learning a lot too, because, because I think their experience with this technology is very different from how, you know, older people are experiencing this technology and they need to have a voice and be part of the dialogue. Um, so I just feel very strongly that diversity is the way to go here. And it's the only way we're going to mitigate some of the biases in building these things. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense to me. It also leads me to another sort of thread that I would love to pull on a little bit with you. You know, there's been a lot of talk in the United States over the last several years about our immigration policy, obviously a tremendous amount of discussion about the southern border with Mexico. And I think at a high level, we should have a discussion about who we're going to let in and why and under what circumstances. I, I think that part of it is healthy. The part that pisses me off as an immigrant to this country myself, as an immigrant entrepreneur to this country, I've spent more than 25 years now in Silicon Valley. And I don't know what the percentage is, but more 
entrepreneurs that I have dealt with are not Native American born than Native American born. Just my personal experience. And, you know, by way of example, we had Eric Yuan on. He's been on a couple of times. He's, he's awesome. the founder of Zoom. And yeah, I love him and he's incredible. And and it took him, if I'm remembering right, nine times to get into this country. Mm-hmm. And so the conversation I wish we were having is, um, hey, who do we want to attract? <laughs> And and by and in the technology, in the STEM world, and in the entrepreneurial world, don't we want more Ranas? Don't we want more Eric Yuans who are going to come here, who are going to learn, who are going to contribute? You know, and in the case of Eric, build twenty-five billion-dollar publicly traded market cap companies that are creating economic opportunity and changing the way people communicate, and I think generally doing good things in the world, best that I can tell. Don't we want the United States of America to be the beacon for STEM, for entrepreneurship, for innovation, and the entrepreneurs that want to come here and and become Ranas? Yes, absolutely. And and by the way, I'm a huge fan of Eric. He was an early advisor for my company and, um, you know, hashtag goals, right? (laughs) Love, Love to kind of build something so powerful like, like he's done. Yeah. I, I just, I mean, what I love about this country is it's open-mindedness. Like, you know, this is what fosters innovation, this diversity of thought and bringing people from all over the world and, um, allowing people to take risks and fail and build again. This kind of spirit is what makes the U S so special. And it's why I'm here with my kids. And it pains me that we are moving away from that and we're making it so hard for people to come into this country and, and also feel safe in this country and feel accepted and, and welcomed. Um, you know, if you look at, at the breakdown of, of the affective team, we are super international. We hire people from all over the world and bring them, um, you know, in, into the U.S. And a lot of people have settled in here like me and, you know, we, we now call America our home. Yeah. And I, I, I think we need, I mean, I understand the regulation and I think we need to do it in a very thoughtful way, but I don't think we should turn away from, from, from this spirit. Yeah. I think the conversation has been too much about who we don't let in Mm -hmm. and not enough about who we do let in. And look, I'm, 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 I'm advocating for strict policies on who we let in. I am. I came here legally. You came here legally. We had to get over some massive hurdles to do that. They made sure you weren't a criminal. I wasn't a criminal, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and there is a vetting process. I'm sure it happened with you. It absolutely happened with me where they kind of stick a thermometer in you. And they're essentially saying, are you going to be a contributor to this country, a net positive or not? And I think that's a good thing to be doing. Right. Um, and at the same time, why aren't we trying to figure out where all the Ranas are and trying to make it as attractive and as uh, easy for you to get here? That that part of the conversation to me is missing, and I'm, I'm a little pissed off about it, frankly. Yeah, because we have to acknowledge that, that there's global competition, right? Like, if you think of it from a markets perspective, we're competing with other countries that are making it really easy for entrepreneurs and kind of, you know, smart, like-minded people to go build a career there and we're competing with these countries. So there need there needs to be a rebrand, if you like, <laughs> that 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 the that the US continues to welcome. Well and I think there's a very real issue here, which is if you take a step back and you go, okay, hey, wait a minute. What if Google was a Chinese company? 
Mm-hmm. What if Facebook was a Russian company? What if Cisco, I mean, look at what's going on with Huawei right now. Some of us are shitting our pants that about that. Look at what's going on with TikTok right now. Th- these are these are things I am scared about. Right. And and you might not like Mark Zuckerberg or you might shit all over Jeff Bezos. And are those perfect people? I, I, I don't know. But you know what? I'm glad they're here. And and when a Huawei or a TikTok takes off at scale, I'm a little spooked about that. Right. Because at least we know that we are all here have a general set of agreed upon core values and shared values. And and we don't know if that's true in China. In fact, we probably know that that's not true in China. And so, yeah. Yeah. And so how do you see the future for uh, for your business um, and really for yourself? I'm very excited about um, about the business. I, I, you know, we started Affectiva 10 years ago and it was really early for the technology. And, and but, but now I feel the market's ready, you know, devices like Amazon Alexa and just the kind of ubiquity of, of, of sensors and conversational and perceptual interfaces. I think that's really going to help make a lot of these applications like here and now. Um, so I'm excited about that. I am excited about the increased conversation just within the general public around, you know, stepping it up as tech companies and really thinking through the ethics of all of this. I, you know, again, as a small startup, we take a very strong position and have a very strong voice in that dialogue. So I, I am excited about that for me personally. Um, you know, I, I'm excited about the book. I really want the book to inspire people all over the world to, you know, forge their own path, find their voice. I, it took me many, many years to embrace my inner voice that, you know, kind of, I call it the nice Egyptian girl voice. (laughs) It's like, you can't do this. You're not allowed to do this. There's no way on earth you can pull this off. Like all of this Debbie Downer voice. And why, why do you think you had that voice or why do you think you have that voice? I think I had that voice because I, I, you know, I have these like cultural expectations kind of programmed into my brain. And every time I try to break free from these cultural expectations, this voice would like kick in and be like, no way. (laughs) You're not going to do that. Even before my parents or somebody around me would say that, my voice would be like, no, 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 no. Like, no, don't go there. Um, And that's manifested. Oh my God. Like, you know, in many, many scenarios and it still will occasionally pop up and I have to kind of take a step back and reframe it and, you know, turn it into, you know, acknowledge it, but just move on <laughs> kind of thing. And, uh, and I think that that's true for a lot of young people who are still trying to, you know, spe- especially if you're, you know, trying to decide if you want to start a company and you're not so sure, or if you want to do something that's kind of different, right? If you want to follow your different, I think, I think actually this is when the voice pops up the most. It's when I try to follow, you know, follow my different. I've heard you talk about your own personal hesitation about stepping up. You were the CTO in the beginning. Is that right? Right. And then the CEO opportunity opened up. Uh, you, did you have that negative voice in your head around that? Yes. So when we started Affectiva, um, we hired a seasoned business executive um, for the first few years. Then he left. And so the question on the table was, okay, who should be the next CEO? And a few members on the board actually said, well, it's Rana should because, you know, it's her baby, it's her technology. And I just, I just was like this voice 
came up and it was like, you've never been CEO before. Like you're going to just fail. Um, interestingly, our head of sales, who was also never a CEO before, he was like, I'll do it. <laughs> so he got the job and he was CEO for a couple of years. And then one day I, I just felt like I was doing a lot of the job already and I felt ready and I, and I went to him. I didn't want to go behind his back. We had built a relationship of trust. So I, I, I went to him directly and I said, you know, I think we should be co-CEO. And he was like, that's a really dumb idea. Why should I agree to that? And then the more we talked, I was like, I actually want to be the CEO. Uh, and he was gracious enough to kind of find a solution. But it, it took a lot of courage from me. And what was interesting is the moment we decided, he and I, that we were going to do this and went to the board with it. Unanimous support from the board. And then a lot of excitement from the team. So in a way, I was my biggest own obstacle. Uh, and I And I try to remember that you know, as I go forward, that I should try not to stand in my own way. And remind me how long ago you took over as CEO of your own company, Rana? Uh, it was um, May 2016. So coming up to four years now. Yeah. And so four years in, you had mm -hmm. that uh, big negative voice in your head. You, you managed to dampen that down and go for it anyway. Uh, what's it like on the other side? <laughs> you know, I love it. i I, I love running this company. The thing I love the most is just p seeing our team and our partners just grow because they're part of this journey, both professionally and personally. I take a lot of pride in that. Um, but it's, it's, it's a lot of stress and it's a lot of, um, you know, it's a lot of figuring things out and just persevering, having a ton of grit. <laughs> a ton of grit, um, right? A ton of grit, Yes. And what have you learned about yourself in the last four years or so? I've learned that I think I'm stronger than I give credit, you know, that I give credit to myself. I also learned that my superpower is that I am, I'm just human. And I, I think I fought that for so long and I just kind of never let that out. Um, and I, and I actually think that's wrong. So I'm a lot more open about my experiences. I, you know, I, 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 talk, I talk openly about being a single mom um, in the U.S. And I, I've just kind of, am, I'm very kind and empathetic and compassionate as a leader. And again, I think I try to fight that in the beginning. And now I think this is what makes me special. It's what makes Affectiva special. It's this like we're human. And did you feel like you had to be a different way than, than be how you are, which is human and empathetic? I think so, because I, I, I think initially I thought that contradicted with being kind of our, our, our picture of being a strong kind of assertive leader. And I don't think being strong and assertive has to be in conflict with being kind and compassionate. I, I love this. I love this discussion. And one of my favorite expressions, Rana, is do not confuse my kindness for weakness. Totally. Can I write that right? down? Yeah, exactly. Please. <laughs> right? Because look, I, I'm of course just getting to know you, but I don't think anybody could argue that you are an ass-kicking, result-producing mofo right. of a person, right? <laughs> right. With right. a giant intellect. I mean, you didn't go to like, well, I got thrown out of school at 18 for being stupid. So you have a lot more education than I do, right? So it's hard to argue that you're not a lot of whatever laudatory, result-producing uh, descriptors you would want to put on a person, right? You don't get to where you are. 
And so I love that expression. To me, it's, it's emblematic of, of who you are in the world. Exactly. And I, and I think there's, I now embrace this as a new form of leadership. Um, I, I don't know if it's new, by the way, but, but it's, but I, I guess a lot of the examples maybe we see in the media that's celebrated, it's, it's, it's maybe not that kind of leadership. And I, and I think there's room for, for leadership that is just more human. And yeah. well, an interesting thing, particularly in the tech space, you know, back in the old days, in the stone age, the entrepreneur CEO types in general in the tech business were these Darth Vader-y type dudes, right? Right. right. And they, they flew around on private planes and they had these giant boats and, you know, they were real scary and they pounded the table and right. um, they swore a lot, although I think that's a great idea. But, um, <laughs> but they, they, were, they were, the impression one got, and I've worked with many of these characters, is they are cultivating a persona that makes people fearful on purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, And my spider sense, but I want to test this with you, is that male or female, that's dying. I know some legendary male CEOs today Mm -hmm. who would describe themselves in similar ways that you described yourself. Uh, And they in no way are pushovers or wallflowers or, or weak. And so I do think you're right that there is a new model uh, and uh, or a new consciousness anyway, if I could call it that, if you'll allow me to get that West Coasty on you, of, <laughs> of the strong, but ass kicking, but empathetic and human CEO. You can be all of those things that this Darth Vadery model is dying. A hundred percent. And you're absolutely right in that it's not a gender thing. This is not because I'm a woman, because I do agree that a lot of my favorite, you know, CEOs today have that element of, of being authentic and, and being empathetic. And yes, I, I mean, I do yell sometimes <laughs> and, and I, 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 but, but, but by and large, I bring my whole self to affectiva and I care about people. I like deeply care about people, not just, not just by the way, the affect, not just kind of our immediate kind of stakeholders, like my team or my investors, but our partners, society, like we decided to start this emotion AI summit. We've been doing it for the past three years and it's an opportunity to just bring people together and have an open dialogue around the future of technology and how it's going to impact us. I didn't need to do that as a young company. In fact, you know, there's, you know, somebody can argue that maybe I sh- it's better off to spend all of our mind share on just like the next sales opportunity, right? But I just think we have to, I don't know, we have to take a holistic approach to, to doing this. Um, I know I say this a lot. I don't care. The distinction between missionaries and mercenaries. And you are the classic definition of a missionary right? You are up to something. Hmm. And I think leaders, in regardless of their field, if they're truly missionaries and they're tough as shit, but heart-centered at the same time, that's, I don't know, isn't that where we want to be? That's, that's, that's what's endearing. Absolutely. Love tough as shit, but heart-centered. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be my new mantra. I love it. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? I think we've covered a lot. That was great. Thank you. Well, 
my pleasure. And I want to thank you. You are a spectacular human being. I love everything about what you're doing. And um, uh, come back anytime. I'd love to. Thank you. Thank you. Stay legendary, my friend. (laughs) Thank you. Well, there she is, Dr. Raina L. Kalubi. I'm sure uh, I'm sure glad I got to have that conversation and share it with you. And if you loved it as much as I did, we would love you if you shared it with your friends. You can check her out at affectiva.com. That's A-F-F-E-C-T-I-V-A.com. And don't forget her stunning new book is out. Girl Decoded, if you're looking for something to read in a little bit of downtime, check out Girl Decoded now. Uh, My dear friends at One Life Fully Lived want to help you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one, lifefullylived.org. Now, do you uh, think that your people think your company is awesome? It has never been more important uh, for you to be able to communicate effectively at scale with your people. And that's why you need a digital communications hub. Imagine being able to text or talk any question into your phone and uh, get an answer back. That's where my friends at Socrates.ai come in. Check out S-O-C-R-A-T-E-S dot A-I and get Employee Awesome. And um, if you're feeling overwhelmed, now's the time to check out the power of a virtual assistant. My friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants are there for you. Visit bottleneck.online today. And please... If you're in a position to help our hospitals, faith-based organizations, NGOs, and frankly, uh, community leadership in many parts of the world need your help right now. So if you can make a difference financially or otherwise, uh, please do so. All right. I need to remind you that today's podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And all rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this podcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts. I don't feel tardy. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Listen to Van Halen. We are produced by the incomparable, I'm going to say the greatest podcast producer of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Uh, Jamie J and Sarah Knox take care of technical awesomeness and lockhead.com. That's L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com. And show notes by the wonderful Diane Gervasio. Now, I want to do some shout-outs today. It's been a while. And if I F up your last name, I apologize. And if you did something great for us and I forgot you, I super apologize. But shout-outs to Josh Coulter, Matthew Holliday, Dion Kenny, Orlando Rios for having me on his podcast, The Ultimate Marketer Podcast. Check it out. The incomparable Ray Wong, Alex Medic, Andrew Smallwood, Doug Morneau, Liz Miller, Jeff Marnus, Vaughn O'Connor, Aaron... Tavukaliv. <laughs> Aaron, I'm probably fucking that up. I apologize. Uh, Lorraine Fox, Tim Beasley, you wanker. Uh, Andy Gurgle. I hope I'm getting that right, Andy. I love you. <laughs> Melina Ragos, uh, Denise Court, John Vroman, Eric Huntley. Check out uh, Eric's podcast, Unstructured. Mark Nevins, Bob Ramika, Scott Athan, and Josh McClaus. And everybody else who's done anything nice for us or shared this podcast, or frankly, if you've been being a good human being lately, I want to thank you too. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Robert Drake of Performance Supply in New Jersey. Sorry, Bob. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please take care of yourself. Take care of your loved ones. Stay healthy. Uh, make a difference if you can. 
be legendary, and of course, follow your different.